Uh, well, if you want to go ahead and uh, grab a Bible, open your Bible uh, to Isaiah chapter 9. If you're using one of the little black Bibles, the church Bibles, uh, it's on page 536. And uh, over the next two weeks, uh, we're going to be exploring um, what uh, Isaiah chapter 9 has to say about the coming of Jesus and what it means for you and me today. Uh, so please turn there, Isaiah chapter 9, page 536 on the church Bibles, and uh, we're just going to read those things together. Please have that open in front of you um, so you can see where it's coming from uh, and see what I'm saying matches up with what's there. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 5 say this, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Uh, so let me just pray for us as we come to consider what these things mean for us today. Father, we come before you as the one who is worthy, who is holy, and we ask that you would, in your grace and mercy, speak to us now by your Spirit through your words. Help us to humble our hearts. Help us to see what these things mean for us today and help us by your strength and your grace to live these things out in humility and with obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I wonder um, as we head towards Christmas, how you feel as we move towards it? How do you feel this morning as we move towards the end of this year? And maybe as you think beyond into next year, how do you see your future from here? How do you see your future? How do you see the future of those around you? And maybe as we think about, uh, we've given thanks for uh, Luke and Thorfinn this morning. We think about our kids. We think about the next generation. How do we see their future working out? For the people in Israel, in Isaiah chapter 9, which is what we just read, the future looks gloomy. It looks gloomy. They were facing enemy invasion, occupation, oppression, they were facing homelessness, hunger, and distress. The question will be, how will they respond in amongst all of that? We see that in verse 21 to 22. If you look just above chapter 9, we see how they're going to respond. With this threat looming over them, with this gloomy future, they will pass through the land, verse 21, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So they're going to look up and they're going to curse God. That's their response. And then they're going to look up to God, curse him, and then they're going to look around them for answers. And all they're going to see is gloom and anguish and more darkness. Though you and I might experience good things in this life, we might experience glimpses of joy in our world. 
we can't deny if we are realistic about it that this world is also a gloomy place. War in Europe, food and fuel prices, the ever-present reality that we all experience, the pain of death. How are we going to respond? How do we see our future? Will we, like the Israelites, look up and curse God, reject Him, question Him? Will we look for answers in the world around us and find none? What happens when we do that? What happens when we curse God and look around us for answers? Well, the author Tim Chester says this, when we look up and curse God and take Him out of the picture, when God's out of the picture and there's no answers from the world around us, what happens? He says we are left with no objective moral standard. If we take God away, we take justice away with Him. For without God, there are no objective criteria to judge what is right and wrong. We're left with survival of the fittest. There's no one to hold people to account. The result is distress and gloom. There is no light of revelation or hope of redemption. Humanity is left to itself, and that is not a happy prospect. So the best we can hope for, if we curse God, look for answers in the world around us, the best we can hope for, he says, is to muddle through life without facing a major illness, crime, redundancy, or war. But even if we manage to avoid those things, in the end, every life ends in death. Or, and this is what Isaiah 9 is calling us to do, or will we choose to look to God's gracious promise that our gloomy future can become glorious? Will we look to Jesus who came to fulfill God's promises and secure that glorious future for you and me this morning? So that's what he's calling us to do here in Isaiah 9, to look to Jesus who fills our gloomy future with light and joy. Jesus has secured us a future firstly filled with light. That's what verses 1 to 2 tell us. Um, what's happening here, this is a prophet called Isaiah. Uh, he's speaking to the real life uh, southern kingdom of Israel in these days, the southern kingdom of Israel called Judah. A prophet, if you're not familiar uh, with the Bible, is someone chosen by God to speak on his behalf, to remind his people to live in accordance with his commands uh, just how uh, the, the verses that Dean read, to live in accordance with his commands and then to warn them of the consequences if they were to wander away from them. And Isaiah is speaking here because God's people haven't been living faithfully for him. They've wandered away from his commands and in his righteous judgment, he's going to punish them by providentially using the Assyrian Empire to invade them from the north and conquer them. But... Okay, verse 1 begins with a, a but there, but with the promise that judgment will come, that discipline will come, but it comes with the promise and the goal of bringing them back to himself. He yearns for Israel, his people, for you and me. Comes with a promise to, that he's going to bring them back to himself. He's disciplining, disciplining them like a parent who lovingly disciplines their child. He's not destroying them. This is meant to draw them back to himself. Their gloom, darkness, and anguish that Isaiah 9 talks about has come about because of their rejection of his rule in their hearts. That's ultimately what's happened here. They said, we don't want you as king. We don't want you to rule our lives. We'd rather rule ourselves. And God in his justice is going to discipline them. It's a gloom and a darkness that started back in the Garden of Eden where our first parents' rejection of God and their desire to rule themselves 
That's really what sin is. If you ever hear the word sin or you hear people talk about sin, sin is a rejection of God's rule and the decision to live our own way. It started in the garden. It led to both their personal and cosmic death, decay, and distress. And we've been following in their footsteps ever since. It wasn't always that way. It wasn't meant to be that way. God didn't create and design it to be that way. It's humans. It's, it's you and I who've royally messed it up and continue to do so. And that death, decay, and anguish continue to cast a shadow over our lives. We continue to dwell in it. That's what verse 2 says. The people who walked in darkness, um, they live in the land of deep darkness. They dwell in that darkness. We dwell amongst that. The Christmas dinner table reminds us of that. As joyful as it is, it reminds, of, it reminds us of those who are no longer sitting at it. It reminds us of those who may not make it to it next year. It reminds us of those who've chosen to abandon it. It reminds us of those who create conflict around it. It's a death, decay, and darkness that is, as verse 2 says, deep. It's deep darkness. It's a death, decay, and anguish which as those who are descended from Adam and who inherit his nature, are complicit in. We don't only dwell in darkness, we are part of the darkness. We choose to walk in it. That's what verse 2 says. Ephesians 5 says it says we were darkness. We contribute to that. It's a gloom that has come about because we've, like them, rejected God's rule in our hearts. And until we recognize that and humbly own that before God, we humanity has no hope. Loved ones, our biggest problems are not outside of ourselves. They're inside of us. Our biggest problems are not horizontal in this world. They're vertical with God. And I get this might sound offensive to you. It might sound like fairy tale nonsense, but nothing else can truly explain or offer any real hope to the gloom and anguish around us and inside of us. Nothing else gives us such a realistic appraisal of the state of our hearts and of our lives and all this world and offers us any real concrete hope and answers. Have you ever asked seriously the question, why is the world the way that it is? Not just how or what. Why is the world the way that it is? Why are we the way we are and it's not just a big mass of material because when we experience the pain and death of those around us, our tears betray that belief. Christmas, the birth of Christ, Isaiah chapter 9, doesn't just answer the why, it does answer that. It offers a way forward. It doesn't just give us answers, it offers us hope, it offers us a way forward, it offers us a bright future. Will the gloom and darkness ever fully lift from our world and our lives? Will it ever fully lift from theirs? Can we be confident that our future will be bright? The good news for them back then was, yes, in God's grace, He promises them in the rebellion and sin that the gloom will eventually turn to glory. That's why Isaiah 9 verse 1 says, but there, there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, He brought contempt, but in the latter time, He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan. For us now, that promise is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. That's our hope. 
Matthew 4, verse 12 to 6, we move into the New Testament. We jump forward in time. We see that Jesus is the one who ultimately fulfills this promise. Matthew 4, verse 12 to 16, which should be on the screen for you. Now, when they heard that John had been arrested, he, that is Jesus, withdrew into Galilee. You see Galilee being spoken about in verse 2 in Isaiah 9. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them light has dawned. That's what Christmas is all about. The light has dawned. The good news of Christmas is that the light has come. The latter time that Isaiah promised here is here. That latter time that God promised has already dawned. The door has decisively cracked open in the darkness of our world and the light has broken in. It has shone, it's still shining, and one day there will be no more darkness. One day Jesus is coming back to remove all gloom and all anguish and all death. One of the things I love about this time of year uh, and the carols that we sing is that a number of the carols we sing Um, are honest and realistic about that yearning and longing for Jesus to come first time, but him to return again. O come, O come, Emmanuel says this, O come, thou dayspring from on high, and cause your light on us to rise. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadow put to flight. We've been saying these things for decades, for hundreds of years. We long for that. We are rejoicing in that has broken into this world, and we long for it to fully happen when Jesus returns. So what should be our response to all of this, to this light coming into the darkness? Well, it's repentance. Jesus himself tells us that. He goes on at the end of that section in Matthew, verse 17, just follow straight on. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Saying, turn from your self-rule, which has been disastrous, and led to death, turn from that self-rule and turn to God for mercy and submit to his loving, good rule over your hearts. What happens when we do that? What happens when we own that in humility and turn to God in repentance? Well, it leads to joy. Brian uh, Chapel says this, in your ears, what does repentance sound like? And even as Christians, okay, I get if you're not Christian here this morning or you, 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 these things are, are new to you or you've heard them before, and even as Christians, repentance sounds like a harsh word. Here's what he says about this. In your ears, what does repentance sound like? We think of groaning and groveling, of grinding teeth and weary resolve. But what does repentance really sound like? When it has completed its work, it sounds like joy. That's where it gets us to. That's the second thing we see in these verses. Jesus has secured us a future filled with light, and secondly, full, with, full of joy. If you look down at verse 3, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Jesus, God is saying here, and in Jesus, uh, our anguish can be turned to joy. And only he can do that. Not just surface level, joy, real joy, heart deep joy, joy that sustains us in the midst of sorrow. We don't need to create it or seek for it. God gives it to us in Jesus. You notice in verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. 
you have increased its joy. Isn't it so wearisome in life to try and find joy and happiness, to search for it, to try and find it, to try and create it? We don't have to. God gives it to us in Jesus. And it's a shared joy. If you look down, it says you have multiplied the, the nation. You get, we get to share that joy in this life together with other people. And it's not just with one nation anymore. Even in Isaiah 9, uh, God's pointing forward to the day when multiple nations will be included in these promises. Galilee of the nations. Even in this promise here. The intention was always for this joy and this hope and this redemption to go beyond the borders of Israel to the whole world. It's a shared joy. People throughout all history. A multitude that will one day not be able to be numbered. A joy no longer defined by death and destruction, but life and multiplication. It's an increased joy. It's a shared joy and it's an increased joy. It's a joy that will grow with time. And it's a joy that comes from being in God's presence. Verse 3 says, there, verse three says they rejoice before you. That's where true joy is found. In the presence of God, rejoicing with Him face to face which we get to do now in significant measure. And when Jesus returns, we will get to do that in all its fullness. Just as I was reflecting on this joy uh, this week, just reflecting on how deeply encouraged and amazed I am by people in this church and Christians I've encountered throughout my life who've been through so much in life, so much, yet still have such joy in God. That's an incredible thing. It doesn't mean there's no sorrow for Christians or for us. It doesn't mean we can't weep when we experience painful things in life. It's just that because of the good news of Jesus and because of God, we can have a joy in the midst of those sorrows and know that one day our joy will be full when we see Jesus face to face. What's that joy like? Well, we've given two pictures here of what that joy is like. It's like harvest. They go from hunger in verse 21 in chapter 8, distressed and hungry, to verse 3 in chapter 9, joy as at the harvest. Kind of like the joy you have when you sit down at the, the table for a full Christmas dinner. Okay, not, not many things make me more joyful. Um, that kind of joy, that your hunger is about to be satisfied. That's what the joy is like. And it's joy like victory. Um, also in verse 3, as glad when they divide the spoil. Maybe that's the kind of joy you experience this time of year when you get one over on a family member playing a board game or you, you win. Verse 4, we'll go on to talk about the victory at Midian when God used Gideon and only 300 men to defeat the Midianites. The victory, just like the victory of Jesus, that victory with Gideon and just like the victory of Jesus over sin, Satan, and death on the cross, it might look weak and unlikely, but it will come. It has come already. It will come in all its fullness at Jesus' return. And we can have joy because that victory, that victory that brings joy is brought about by God. It's guaranteed by Him. We don't have to fight for it. Victory in the Christian life will always look unlikely and is accomplished through weakness, but because of God, it is guaranteed. That's why we can be joyful. And it's a joy that comes from God, as we've already mentioned. God who will, in verses 4 to 5, here are the reasons, here are the reasons fueling our joy. Verses 4 and 5 both begin with 4. 
For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. God is going to end oppression. And in verse 5, he's going to end war. Yoke and staff there in verse 4. Yoke and staff really speak to that long-term burden and suffering that we endure in life. Rod really speaks to being struck and inflicted with evil and suffering from others. If you watch the news at all, or live in the world long enough, you know that these two things surround us. Oppression and war. Oppression, exploitation, corruption, injustice. Oppression by governments, Christian persecution. Oppression in our families, in the workplace, maybe even in our homes. Maybe we've been oppressed by those closest to us. And tragically, even within the church, which is not how it should be. God does not turn a blind eye to this oppression. He is not indifferent to it. He will administer justice in the end, but he also dispenses so much grace. He's going to end oppression and he's going to end war. The kind of war that we see all too commonly, places like Europe at the moment, in Africa, in Asia. Strife and conflict in this country, in our town, in our homes, even though it may be to a lesser degree. God promises one day these things will end. And Jesus is proof that God isn't just paying lip service to these promises. In Jesus, oppression will become liberation and war will become peace. O holy night, one of my favorite carols. I have lots of favorite carols. I had to curtail myself quoting carols in this. Chain shall he break for the slave is our brother and in his name all oppression shall cease. We can sing that with confidence because of Jesus. Jesus can speak to the world, to your oppression, to war and to pain because he himself has been enslaved. He himself has been oppressed. He entered those things. He entered our world. He didn't stand at a different distance. He entered all of that and was killed for it. He died for you and me that we might be reconciled to God and one day live in a fully reconciled and restored world. That's why we can be joyful that's what we're reminded of at this time of year. This isn't fairy tale nonsense. These are eyewitness testimonies. These are fulfilled promises. These things have happened. These things will happen. And your joy can be full in these things. How exactly it's going to happen and what Jesus will replace the oppression and war that he's coming to end with. Well, you need to come back next week for that to see the fullness of what he's going to do. But victory will come. Like Midian, like Gideon and his 300 men, it may come in unexpected ways. It may come through something seemingly weak, but victory will come, and we'll see that more about that next week. What do we do as we wait? <clears throat> Jesus came the first time to save. He will come again to judge. His return is delayed because God is patient, seeking us, wanting us to turn to him in that time, but he will come again to judge. Oppressors and warmongers will be held to account. Justice will be served. None of us are immune to that judgment, though. Only in Jesus can we be on the right side of that. So the call this morning is to turn to him in repentance and faith and be embraced by his love and his mercy and his grace. If you're a Christian here this morning, a big application as we wait for the fullness of that light to come into this world is to hold fast to the truth. Verse 16 in chapter 8, if you look up, 
This is what was encouraged to, do, to the remnant in Israel, those who were faithful. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among the disciples. Hold fast to your faith. This world is hard. Hold fast to the faith. Many things will seek to, to lead us astray. Hold fast to the truth. And as we wait for Jesus' return, wait and be hopeful. That's what verse 17 in chapter 8 says. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. Hold fast, wait with patience and be hopeful. Because the darkness has not lifted just yet, but it one day fully will. Let the light of Jesus that has broken into this world sustain us. Let it cause us to rejoice and let it cause us to rightly long for him to return in all of his fullness. And let's keep looking to him. Let's keep looking to him, to Jesus who fills our gloomy future with light and with joy. A future he secured by his sacrifice on the cross.